will need a Bible. We are going to reference John 17, which we read just a few moments ago. Uh, there's also an outline in the bulletin if you're here. Hopefully you picked one of these up on the way in. If you're watching at home, the bulletin is online. It's on our website and it's on our Facebook page. We're jumping back into the Gospel of John. Uh, we're picking up right where we left off back at the beginning of December. Uh, over the Christmas season, we talked about uh, the Christmas story. And then, as I mentioned earlier, in early January, we talked about the character of God, the attributes of God. We started this series in the Gospel of John, January 13th, 2019. So that's a long time ago. We've made a few pit stops along the way, and now we're on track to push through and to finish late in the spring. Uh, if we don't have any unforeseen weather cancellations, which we're pressing on this morning through one of those, uh, potential cancellations. We'll hit Easter on Easter, and then we'll finish up John in the late spring. I want to say a few words about the context of John 17 before we jump in and think about this prayer. This part of the Gospel of John is part of something that we call, or scholars call, the farewell discourse. The farewell discourse was delivered in the context of a Passover celebration. And I've given you a few verses here uh, just to give you a frame of reference for what's going on. John 13, 1 talks about Jesus gathering with the disciples in the upper room and they are celebrating the Passover. And John 13 describes Jesus before he actually starts talking to them, teaching them, he washes their feet as an act of service. And he's trying to teach them something about what it means uh, to be great in the kingdom. One of the things that's not entirely clear when you read through John 13 all the way to 17 is when Jesus and the disciples leave the upper room. And I gave you a few references. John 14, uh, verse 31, makes it sound like they leave in the middle, but then if you just keep reading and you get to John 18, it sounds like they leave after Jesus prays the prayer that we're going to spend a few weeks looking at. So the specific details are not entirely clear. What is clear is that it's the Passover. Jesus is meeting with the disciples in the upper room. He washes their feet. He's teaching them. This is his last opportunity to talk to the disciples, to teach the disciples, and to prepare them for the fact that he's going away. And at some point, they get up and they leave, and they go to Gethsemane. Our passage... John 17 is part of the farewell discourse, and it's known as the high priestly prayer, the high priestly prayer. It's interesting to me that it's only found in John. It's interesting to me that John wrote last, Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote first, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke all leave it out. It's fascinating to me that they did not include this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do tell us about Jesus praying in Gethsemane, and he's praying about this cup that he's about to drink. He's praying about the wrath of the Father that's about to be poured out on the Son at the cross. John does not include Jesus praying in Gethsemane. That's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and instead he includes this high priestly prayer. The prayer breaks down into three parts. It's pretty simple. Verse 1 to 5, which we're looking at this morning, Jesus prays for himself. In the middle section, he prays for the disciples, meaning the guys in the room, the apostles, the 12 apostles minus Judas. And then in verse 20 to 26, Jesus prays for us, for believers, for the people who would believe the good news about Jesus in the future. Each section of this prayer has parallel themes. 
Each of the three sections talk about God's glory. Each of the three sections talk about the relationship between God the Son and God the Father. And each of the three sections talk about a specific group of people that the Father has given to the Son. And so we're going to see these themes over the next few weeks. This morning, we're especially talking about glory. And I think it's worth admitting that the word or the idea of glory is very hard to define. It's nearly impossible to define neatly and simply and shortly. Concrete things are much easier to define. For example, if I said, give me a definition of a basketball, that's a concrete thing. And you could say, okay, define a basketball. Well, it's a ball. It's round. Uh, it's about the size of a small watermelon. It's usually orange. has black lines all the way around it. You use it for the sport of basketball. You can dribble it. You can pass it. You can shoot it. You could use all these descriptive terms, and somebody would begin to sort of see in their mind what a basketball is. Abstract concepts are much harder to define. For example, beauty. If I asked you to give me a definition of beauty, you might talk about something that sounds beautiful or you might talk about something that looks beautiful or you might talk about a particular person, but it's hard to sort of sum up beauty in a very simple, short definition. That's also true of glory. And I've just given you a list of words here as you think about glory in the Bible. You might be talking about God's intrinsic glory. Uh, That's all the sum total of his attributes. It's the sum total of who God is. It's taking all those characteristics we talked about at the beginning of this year and the beginning of last year, plus a whole bunch of other ones, and you add them all together. That's who God is in his essence. It's his glory. Or you might talk about ascribed glory. That's when we gather together in a room like this and we glorify God. None of us thinks that we're making God more glorious. He is supremely, infinitely glorious. But yet we gather together as his people. We try to glorify him. You might talk about the Shekinah glory of God, like the visible manifestation of God's presence with his people. It it shows up in the Old Testament. It shows up on the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus is transfigured before the disciples and they see his glory. You might talk about the word weight. I don't mean weight like you've put on over the shutdown or over a long cold weekend when you eat all the time. I mean that the Hebrew word glory, the root word means weighty or heavy. Meaning God is not some light, sort of just uh, immaterial, insignificant being, but there's a weightiness, a gravity, a seriousness to who he is. You might talk about God's holiness. You might think of Isaiah 6 where the seraphim are singing and they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his, not holiness, but his glory. And you think when God's holiness, the things that make him unique go on display for the world to see, that is God's glory. So all these things are sort of wrapped up in this idea of glory. And that files in or it flows into the big idea of this passage. It's, it's really simple, but it's hard to take in and to understand and to comprehend. So here it is. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed first for himself and for his glory. He prayed for himself and his glory. It's just worth noting he didn't pray for the disciples first. 
He didn't pray for you and me first. He prayed for himself first. And as he's praying for himself, he's praying for his own glory. I read some statistics this week. As of February of this year, as of this month this year, there are 1,750,000 podcasts available for you to download and listen to. You thought your DirecTV with 500 channels was a lot to sort through. 1,750,000 different podcasts. I don't mean episodes. I mean different podcasts available on the Internet for you to download. I don't know how many of you listen to podcasts. Uh, Statistics say that about half of Americans have listened to a podcast. Uh, Statistics say, as of this last month, that about a third of Americans have listened to a podcast in the last month. If you're familiar with podcasts, you know there's all sorts of genres of podcasts. Uh, There are religious podcasts. Our church has one. We record sermon audio. We post it online. If you miss, you can get online and you can catch up. Uh, One of the most popular genres of podcast is sports podcast. I like to listen to a a few sports podcasts. Don't always have time to watch my favorite shows on TV when they air, and so you can download the podcast. You can listen to it at your leisure. If you actually look at the rankings of the most popular podcasts, most of the top 20 or so are true crime podcasts, which says something interesting about us as human beings, that what we really want to listen to in our spare time is horrific stories of crime. And those of you like my wife who like to listen to these true crime podcasts, it's a little bit disturbing that you're so interested in these. And most of you end up walking around looking at the rest of us, assuming that we're mass murderers or that we're serial killers in disguise. And so I'm not sure what the, the genre of true crime podcast says about us, but it's very, very popular. One popular genre podcast you could just call conversational. There are an awful lot of podcasts where the host simply sits down with another person and they just talk. They have a conversation and you just listen to them. They're just talking about some topic. There's a podcast by a man named Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is not a Christian. He's not a believer, but I think he's an interesting guy. And he's got a podcast where he just sits down. Right now he's doing it over Zoom, and he just talks with somebody. They record the conversation. It's usually about an hour. And people love to listen in to these conversations being had by someone else. In John 17, that's essentially what we're looking at. It's a conversation. We call it. Jesus' high priestly prayer. But you understand that prayer is communication, it's a conversation, it's talking to the Lord. And in John 17, it's a remarkable thought, we get to eavesdrop. We get to listen in to Jesus, God the Son, having a conversation with Almighty God, God the Father. It's a remarkable thing to think about. Uh, Technology, through a podcast, allows you to listen to conversations between all sorts of interesting people. The Word of God in this instance allows you to actually listen in to a Trinitarian conversation between the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, and His Heavenly Father. And you just get to listen in and see what did Jesus actually talk about at this most critical moment 
of his earthly life and ministry, the night before the crucifixion, what was on his mind, what was on his heart as he talked to the Father? There's a a reformer named Philip Melanchthon. He was a friend of Martin Luther. He offers this commentary as we just listen into this conversation. He says, There is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or in earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. It's really a remarkable thing to listen to Jesus talk to the Father. Another reformer, John Knox, ended his life with a prolonged illness. He, he was bedridden. He, he couldn't get out of bed. And every day he asked that this chapter of the Bible be read to him. Even when he couldn't read Scripture himself, he wanted to hear this prayer, this most holy conversation between God the Son and God the Father. And so this morning we're going to listen in. And we're just going to ask and answer one simple question. How did Jesus pray for himself and his glory? We're looking at the first five verses of this prayer. Here's the first truth. Jesus prayed with a focus on the Trinity. The Trinity. In this prayer, at least this initial section of the prayer, verse 1 to 5, there is one request. First five verses, Jesus asks one thing of the Father, and he asks it two times, once in verse 1, worse in, once in verse 5. Look what he says in verse 1, Father, the hour has come, here's the request, glorify your Son. He asked the Father to glorify his Son. Look down at verse 5, Father, here's the same request, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Now look, If you've grown up in church and you've gone to VBS and Sunday school and you filled in sermon outlines before, you kind of get used to this kind of talk from Jesus. You tend to read through the New Testament and you hear Jesus say things like this and you don't give it much thought. I just want you to stop and think about how audacious it is for someone to ask Almighty God to share in His glory with them. Look what Isaiah says in Isaiah 48, verse 11. This is God speaking. He says, My glory I will not give to another. My glory, the Lord says, I will not give it to another. This would be like me coming up to you after the service and saying, Hey, after the weather clears this week, I'd like to go down to your bank with you. And I would like you to put me on all your accounts so that I can share in your deposits. You would find a new church pretty quick. You would say, that's my money. That's not your money. That's not how it works with something that belongs to us. And God doesn't have money in this sense and what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 48, but he has glory. And what he says to his people is, I'm not going to share it with anyone else. It is mine and only mine. I will not share my glory with another. And here's Jesus on the night before the crucifixion praying first and foremost about himself and his own glory and he asked the Father twice to glorify the Son. Only makes sense if you understand the doctrine of the Trinity. That there is one God 
who exist as three persons. Look in the text. Look at verse 3. He says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. There is only one God. Jesus knew that. He knows that now. There is only one God. And yet in this farewell discourse, he's talking, John 16 and 14, about the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. Here in John 17, it's the Son talking to the Father. You've got all these members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and yet he says there is only one God. And in verse 5, Jesus says this, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. You understand that's his intrinsic glory. Before the world existed, before anyone was around to glorify God, he had glory. The Son had it with the Father. When you and I seek glory for ourselves, we are robbing God. We're taking what is his as if it were ours. But when Jesus, the Son of God, seeks his own glory, he is seeking what is rightfully his. And everything that Jesus is praying here about his own glory only makes sense if you understand the doctrine of the Trinity. If you deny the doctrine of the Trinity, you end up with the idea that Jesus is trying to steal. He's trying to rob the Father of his glory. Here's a second thing Jesus prays. He prays with a focus on the cross. With a focus on the cross. Look at verse 1 again. Jesus says this. Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. If you start in the Gospel of John chapter 1 and you just start reading through, this is a theme you see over and over and over again. And most of the way through the Gospel of John, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. At the wedding in Cana, they want him to to make wine because they've run out and Jesus initially says, my hour has not yet come. In John 7, some of his enemies want to arrest him, and John says, look, nobody laid a hand on him. Do you know why? It's because his hour had not yet come. In John 8, they actually want to kill Jesus. And again, John says, nobody did anything because his hour had not yet come. You get to John 12, and there's some Greek men, some Gentile men who come to see Jesus, and all of a sudden a switch goes off, and Jesus says, my hour has come. It's getting close. In John 13, Jesus meeting with the disciples in the upper room celebrating the Passover, he knows that his hour has come. And now here in John 17, he's praying to the Father, God the Son, talking to God the Father, and he says, the hour has come. You and I know because we've read the whole story that Jesus is talking about the cross. This is the sole, single solitary reason that the Son of God took on human flesh and entered this world is to die for sinners. This is the hour for which he came. And up to this point, he said, it hasn't come, it hasn't come, it hasn't come, it's getting close, and now he says it's come. The hour has come. Look what Hebrews 12.2 says about Jesus in terms of the crosses. It says, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I don't have to tell you that crucifixion involved shame, great shame in the first century. 
The Romans had many ways to put people to death. This was one way to put people to death and to shame them publicly. It's obvious on a human level Jesus was shamed in the crucifixion. In my personal Bible reading, I read this week about the people passing by. Uh, Those walking by the street saw him and they shamed him. Uh, His enemies standing there who had worked for his crucifixion are shaming him as he hangs on the cross. The other men being crucified with Jesus are shaming him as he's crucified. He's shamed on a human level. He's also shamed on a cosmic level, on a Isaiah 52, 53 level, where he bears our sin. He takes our shame. He takes our iniquity, and he bears it on the cross. It's an object of shame. It's an object of disgust. It's an object of reproach. It's an object of horror. And yet Hebrews says that he endured the cross and he despised the shame Look back above for the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him. That joy was his glory. You see it here. He's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And it's our salvation. Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He faces the shame of the cross for his glory being exalted at the right hand of the Father and for our salvation, for the sake of our faith. It's the reason he came. Not just to teach stories, not just to heal the sick, not just to cast out demons, but to die. To die in shame, but to to die for the joy that was set before him. Here's the third thing that he prays about. He prays with a focus on authority. Authority. Verse 1 and 2. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus says, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. Given him authority over all flesh. If you read through the Gospels, it's clear that Jesus had authority. You can look at Mark chapter 1, verse 22. It says, he taught as one who had authority. If you look at Mark chapter 1, verse 27, it says he had authority over demons. If you look at Mark chapter 2, verse 10, he had authority to forgive sins. He had authority to heal the sick. If you look at Mark chapter 3, verse 15, he had authority to give some of his authority to the disciples. And yet here, Jesus praying, he acknowledges that the Father has given him authority over all flesh. And then he specifies what that means. He has authority over all flesh specifically to give eternal life to those who had been given to him by the Father. I imagine you heard the news this last week. Tom Brady is still winning Super Bowls. I don't really know what you think about Tom Brady. It's really irrelevant and immaterial. It's a remarkable thing that a 43-year-old man continues to win Super Bowl after Super Bowl after Super Bowl. You don't have to like him. You just have to acknowledge this is remarkable. There's not many 43-year-olds who can do what he's done. He has played in 10 Super Bowls, won seven. Before this year, he was a member of the New England Patriots, and he played in nine Super Bowls, and he won six. This year, he goes to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a team not very many people thought he would consider going into this 
season, a team that by all accounts last year was very average. They weren't bad. They weren't great. They were just sort of average. They made a lot of mistakes. They had a lot of turnovers. They, they had a lot of penalties. They were a little bit lazy. They were a little bit undisciplined. They were just average. But then they sign a guy who walks into the building or walks onto the practice field with six Super Bowl rings. You walk into an average team with six Super Bowl rings, you walk in with a measure of authority. He starts telling people what to do, and they start listening to him. He calls people who are retired, and he says, you're not retired anymore, and they just show up, and they start playing. We think about authority in this sense, and we think this is a man who had the ability to get something done. He had the ability to change something. That's really what we're driving at when Jesus says that he has authority over all flesh, specifically to give eternal life to those who have been given him by the Father. I talk to people sometimes who are wondering if God would save them. Maybe you know people who wrestle with this. They wonder, would God really save me? It's not that they question sort of the general idea that God would save people. They just think about their own life. They feel the weight of their sin. They know the blackness of their own heart. They know how stubborn and persistent they've been in rebellion, and they just sort of wrestle with this idea, would God actually forgive me? Is it possible that he could actually change me? If you've ever wrestled with that, it's just worth thinking about what Jesus prays here. He prays, and he acknowledges that the Father has given him all authority, supreme authority, authority over all flesh. He is the sovereign one over all that exists. As the sovereign one, he can do whatever it is that he wants to do. And we just talked about the cross. He's the one who endured and despised the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him, and that joy was his glory and our salvation. And if you've ever found yourself wondering, could he really save me or can he really change me? You just need to go back to what the Bible says and say, this is the man who has all authority. This is the man who came for one sole, single, solitary reason, and that's to die for sinners so that he would be glorified and so that sinners would be saved. He desires to save sinners. He is able to save sinners praying for his glory. He's praying about the cross. He's praying about authority. Last, he prayed with a focus on eternal life. Eternal life. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I don't know that this is universally true. I suppose there are some truly hardened secularists hardened atheists out there. But I've been to enough funerals of Christian people and non-Christian people to come to the conviction that most human beings, virtually all human beings deep down, have a longing for eternal life. You can talk a big game about secularism and naturalism and atheism and all the rest, but when it comes down to the moment of grief and it's your mother or your grandmother or your child or your spouse who dies, most of us have this instinctive hope that there's something else. 
that what we've experienced on this life isn't all that there is. I think the average American, as they hope for eternal life, thinks about eternal life in terms of a never-ending vacation. I think that's sort of the general idea of what we hope for in eternal life. A place we go where it's just nice and relaxing. For you, maybe that's a hammock by the beach, a little drink with an umbrella in it. Maybe you're not a sand person. I'm not really a sand person. Maybe you think, nope, I don't want hammock by the beach. I want cabin in the woods. I don't want anybody close to me. I want to be all by myself, just get away. But I think that's how most Americans tend to think about eternal life. There's just this hope that there's something after death and that it would be something that suits what we like in this life. Now, I've read the book of Revelation. Most of you probably have. The book of Revelation describes a new heaven and a new earth. I'm assuming in the new heaven and the new earth, the restored creation, there will be a few hammocks by the beach. I'm assuming there's going to be a few cabins in the woods. I'm going to assume there's going to be a lot of nice places to go, but it's clear from the book of Revelation and from everything you read in the Bible, including John 17, that eternal life is not summed up in hammocks or cabins. Look what Jesus says in verse 3. This is eternal life. Remember, he has authority to give eternal life to all of those given him by the Father. Verse 3, this is eternal life that they know you the one true God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the hope of the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah looked to a day where no longer would each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. They won't have to do that because they'll all know the Lord, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Those promises about forgiving our sin and not remembering our iniquity are remarkable promises. But it's not just forgiven and our iniquity is not just put away so that we can enjoy a never-ending vacation. Our sin is forgiven and our iniquity is put away so that we can know the Lord. That's what Jesus defines as the essence of eternal life. It's not just a vacation. It's not just a relaxing setting. It is knowing the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he sent. I think this is why John wrote this gospel in the first place. We've looked so many times over the last couple years at John 20. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life, it's eternal life, in his name. That's why John wrote this book, so that you could know the truth about Jesus, you could believe the truth about Jesus, and you could have life. And you come away from that passage saying, well, this sounds great, but what is that life like? What does it mean to have life in Jesus' name? Well, It means that one day you get to live in a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation. It will not disappoint. Whatever your expectations are, I promise you'll love it. Five-star reviews for all eternity. It means your sins can be forgiven. To use another Old Old Testament reference, it means that even though your sins are red like crimson, you can be washed white as snow, as white as wool. He's eager to do it. He's capable of doing it. 
But above all, what does it mean to have eternal life? It's not just living in the new creation as great as that will be. It's not just having your sins forgiven as desperately as we need it. All of it points to one ultimate end, and Jesus talks about it here in John 17. It's that we would know the only true God and that we would know Jesus Christ whom he sent. My prayer for you, my prayer for myself is that we would celebrate and that we would live in the knowledge of the one true God in the knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ.